are you still kind of rolling over in your bed on that vacation mode? I don't know about you, but it was kind of hard to get my brain back into study gear. Was it you? Well, I have a little note to read to you today that we got from uh, Scott from the food pantry here at um, Northside. And it says, ladies, thank you for the food donation to our pantry. It was such a great help to those in need. God bless you. Scott Long in the Covenant Food Pantry. So thank you, ladies, for all your donations that you gave last week or last time we were together. Now, a lot of times when we start a new year or at the semester break, we have new people that join us. Are there any people here that are here for the first time this morning? Yay! Couple! Welcome! We're glad to have you. And even though you're jumping into the middle of a study, I hope you'll stick with it because sometimes it's hard when you haven't had... Well, it's just revelation is going to be hard, period. (laughs) But when you haven't had the weeks upcoming, so good for you and stick with it, okay? Um, And also a shout out to those snowbirds who may be listening to us online. Aren't they lucky? But anyway, we're, we're glad you're here this morning. Um, I have just a reminder uh, for those of you who may remember Joey Chapman. She was um, a leader here for years and years and years. But her celebration of life will be this Saturday on, on January 13th at 11 o'clock at Zionsville Fellowship Church. So if any of you would like to come to that, it'll be this Saturday at 11 o'clock. All right, well, since we've been off for, such a, for several weeks, such a long time, again, let's get our brains in the thinking and studying mode. Let's do a little bit of a review of where we are in our study of Revelation, shall we? We're talking about the, seven, the final seven years of Earth's history, which is called the Tribulation. And it's a time of wrath and judgment on the Earth that's going to culminate with the return of Jesus to this earth to set up his millennial kingdom. Now, the reason for these judgments is not only to prepare Israel for the return of her Messiah and to deal with those who have rejected Jesus, but also to give people a final chance to repent and turn to faith in Christ. Now, if you remember... There are three series of seven judgments, and I think we have a slide of that. We've used it for several weeks, but for those of you who are new, um, we have, there's a, a three series of seven judgments. There are seven sealed judgments. Remember, that's the scroll that only Jesus was worthy to open, and he opened those one at a time, and then out of the seventh seal comes the seven trumpet judgments. Then out of the seventh trumpet judgment comes the seven bowl judgments. Um, We saw the seven seal judgments in chapters 6 and 8. The seven trumpet judgments we'll see, we saw in chapter 8 and we'll see today in chapter 9 and it'll extend into chapter 11. And then lastly, those seven bowl judgments we'll see in chapter 16. And then there's also a pause or an interlude in between each of these three series of judgments. Now, up to this point in our study, we've looked at all the seven seal judgments, all seven seals on the scrolls been opened, and the first four 
trumpets have sounded. Now, if you remember, the first four trumpet judgments were directed toward the earth itself, the physical realm. Remember, one-third one of the earth's vegetation and, and grass and trees and all that was killed. Uh, one-third of the sea and the uh, sea creatures was destroyed. One-third of the freshwater sources were destroyed. And then one-third of the light from the sun and the moon and the stars. But three more trumpet judgments are yet to come, which will be directed at people instead of the physical earth. We left off with chapter 8. The last verse in chapter 8 says, As I watched, and this was John speaking, he says, As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe! Woe! Woe to the inhabitants of the earth! Now, do you remember what we said the inhabitants of the earth were? Who, who these inhabitants of the earth were? It's not just talking about people who are living on the earth at that time. Some of your um, translations may say earth dwellers, but do you remember who those people are we talked about? This isn't, again, just people that are described as living on the earth, but it's those who have made this world their home. The people whose whole life and whole focus is on this world. These are people who are so focused on the temporary things of this world that they have either not bothered to think about God and eternal things, or who have flat out rejected him completely. So John hears this eagle cry out, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other angels. So if the inhabitants of the earth thought the first four trumpet judgments were bad, they haven't seen anything yet. And this is where we ended last time we were together with this eagle's message giving the unbelievers one more opportunity to repent before the trumpet judgments continue again. This week we're going to look at the next two trumpet judgments. Now, we're coming to a section that is really weird and frankly pretty scary. And I'm, I'm sure that most of us have all watched movies or seen TV shows where we've seen a lot of, I mean, weird and scary creatures, right? But what's going to be described here in this chapter of Revelation isn't from a movie. It's not fictional fantasy. These things are going to be real and they will really happen. And frankly, it can be terrifying, okay? But as J. Vernon McGee said, let's get, not, or let's get our feet back on the ground and we'll find that the things mentioned here ought not frighten us. If you're a child of God, you're not going through these things. It's not the blessed hope of the church to endure these things. The church will have been taken out of the world by this time, and these are the things which will happen in the great tribulation period to a Christ-rejecting world. Now, I agree with McGee. Yes, these are things that we need to study about and be aware of, but we don't need to be afraid of it, ladies, if we've put our faith and trust in Jesus. So, do you have your brave girl armor on this morning? And are you ready to jump in to this weird and crazy chapter? If so, turn with me to Revelation 
chapter 9, and we'll get started. But before we do, why don't we pray and ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, shall we? Father, what a blessing it is to be able to be back together at the beginning of a new year and be able to sit down with fellow sisters and sit at your feet and open your word and know that you have promised when we're gathered together that you will also be here. And you've also given us your Holy Spirit to teach us these things because without him, we cannot understand your word. And without him, I sure cannot teach it. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to be our teacher today. Give us ears to listen and hear what you want each one of us to know individually. But most important, give us hearts to receive what you're trying to tell us today. And may this morning glorify Jesus, because it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. All right, let's read chapter 9 together. It said, The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to earth. A star was, the star was given a key to the shaft of the abyss. And when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it, like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. And it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire and smoke and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by three plagues, the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads, 
with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze, stone and wood, idols that can't see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now, isn't that another uplifting chapter? <clears throat> well, when this fifth trumpet sounded, John saw a star that had fallen from the sky to earth. But this star is different than the star that we saw that fell in chapter 8. We know that this star isn't a literal star, but some kind of being, because it's referred to as he in verses 1 and 2. Now, there are a lot of opinions as to who this being is. Some think it's Jesus. Some think it's Satan. Some think it's an evil angel or a good angel who's been sent by God to open the bottomless pit. But personally, I think the word fallen that's used here, instead of the words coming down from heaven, indicates that this is either a fallen angel um, or Satan. But whoever this is, he is temporarily given the key to the abyss and allowed to open it. Now, who gave him this key? Do you remember back from our study in chapter 1? Who did we learn that holds the keys to death and Hades? Jesus holds the key. So, whoever this being is, he was given the key to open the abyss under the complete authority and full control of Jesus to use for his purposes and plan. Now, the demons locked up here in the abyss must be some of the most wicked and perverted of all the fallen angels because this abyss is a place to be feared by all demonic forces. Do you remember from some of our previous studies that when Jesus cast out demons from a man in the um, Gasserine area, Gatorine area, they begged Jesus not to send them and command them to go into the abyss, remember? Instead... They begged him to send them into a herd of pigs. Remember that? Now, I don't know about you, but reading this made me stop and think. Isn't it a sobering thought to realize that with the world as bad as it, as it is now, right now there are still are thousands upon thousands of demons locked up and aren't free to roam and wreak havoc on the earth. Isn't that a sobering thought? Can you imagine what it's going to be like during the trib this time in the tribulation when they are released on the earth and free to do their evil works? Well, verse 2 says that when this fallen star opened the abyss, so much thick black smoke spewed out that it covered the earth in darkness. And out of this putrid black smoke that was belched out of the abyss... John sees a new terror emerge. Hordes of hideous demons who had taken on the visible form of locust-like creatures swarmed out of the abyss to plague the earth. In verses 7 through 10, John tries to describe these frightening creatures. And over and over he says, they're like, they're like, they're like. Remember we've talked about that before where John tries to use English 
well, I guess he didn't use English, but human language to describe unearthly, hellish creatures. He tries to describe them. And based on his description, we get a glimpse of the character of these demonic creatures. John describes them as locusts because of their vast numbers and their massive destructive capabilities. He said they'll be warlike, powerful, and defiant, like horses chomping at the bit and pawing the ground, eager to charge forward on their mission. The crowns they wore were victor's crowns, indicating that these demons will be unstoppable. People won't be able to hurt or kill them and will have no cure for the terrible pain that they'll cause with their scorpion-like sting. Their faces were like the faces of men, which indicates that they're intelligent beings, not just simply insects. They have teeth like a lion. They're vicious in their attacks, in their sole mission to hurt people and make them suffer. Now these demon-like creatures are brutal and they're fierce. And they're going to be led by a king called the Angel of the Abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, and both of these words mean destroyer. So this king is characterized by destruction. Now, some people believe this angel king is Satan, although Satan has never been locked in the abyss yet. He will be during Christ's millennial reign, but he hasn't been locked in the abyss yet. Now, <laughs> Satan was the one who led the rebellion initially in heaven in the first place and um, gathered one-third of the angels to fall with him, remember? So it could be that these demons were released and go straight to Satan as their leader or king. Others think that this may be one of Satan's high-ranking generals or commanders who has also been condemned to the abyss and now leads these demonic creatures out of the abyss and probably in conjunction with Satan, and then they are released to do their work. But whoever this king is, notice this very, very important fact. He and the rest of these demonic creatures are on a leash. God put strict limitations on them. They're not allowed to harm the grass or the green plants or the trees. They aren't allowed to kill. They can only sting and torment, but not all people. It says they're only allowed to harm those without the seal of God on their foreheads. So that would mean that the 144,000 Jewish um, witnesses who were sealed uh, during the interlude between um, the sixth and seventh seal that we talked about, they will be protected. And possibly any other believers that have put their faith in Jesus from their witness. Now, it doesn't say that here. So we don't know for sure, but it's a possibility. That would line up with God's character, but we don't know that for sure. But if that is the case, it would mean that these locust-like creatures are only allowed to sting unbelievers. But again, we don't know that for sure. But what we do know that they are allowed only to do this for five months, which is the natural life cycle for locusts. Um, God is sovereign. And so there is a limit on what Satan and his army of demons can do. If they had their way, they would not only torment all people, 
but they would also kill them if they had their way. But God has limited them. God, in his mercy and grace, limits the time and the scope of what these demons can do to people. He could have let the um, torture last for more than five months, couldn't he? But in his grace, he will restrain it. He could have let these demons kill, but he doesn't. But during these five month, this five-month period of time, those who are relentlessly stung and tormented by these demonic creatures will be in such agony that they'll wish they were dead. And they may try to commit suicide, but the Lord won't allow them to die. Notice once again that people would rather die than turn to the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. When you read that, that... They, the Lord would not allow them to die. They'd wish they were dead, and the Lord wouldn't allow them to die. Did any of you hear Satan whisper in your ear, well, isn't that cruel of the Lord to let them suffer instead of die? Be honest. Did any of you hear, the, hear Satan whisper that? I did. Thinking, isn't that cruel of the Lord? Well, let's just stop and think this through, okay? Satan and his demons will convince these people that death would be better than this pain and suffering that they're going through. That their pain and suffering will end when they die. Right? That's what they're, they're going to try to convince these people of. That's what they try to convince people of today that are suffering and in pain. That it would be better just to be dead and then it'll be all over. But these people have no idea of the pain and the torment that waits for them in hell which is, will last for eternity, not just for five months. Now, God could have let these creatures kill these people. But he uses this suffering and this pain to try to bring these people to salvation so they won't be condemned to hell and an eternity of torment and suffering. Because once a person dies, there is no more opportunity to repent and turn to the Lord. So the Lord, who is doing everything he possibly can to get these people to wake up before time runs out, will not allow them to die, but instead gives them another opportunity to repent and come to him. Remember, God doesn't want anyone to perish. So he'll use even severe pain and suffering to try to get their attention to bring them back to him. Now, at the end of this five-month period of severe agony, people are going to probably feel relieved that it's over when the stinging stops, won't they? But look at what verse 12 says. It says, the first woe is past, but two other woes are yet to come. So as terrible as this first woe was, you got two more coming down the pike. And by the way, this is another indication that these judgments are sequential and not overlapping. Now, verse 13 says that the sixth angel sounded his trumpet and was commanded to release four angels who were bound at the Euphrates River. Now, who are these four angels that are bound? Well, the fact that they are bound indicates that they are fallen demonic angels because no heavenly angels are ever bound. Now, the Euphrates River, I think we have a slide of that. 
The Euphrates River is the longest and most important river in the Middle East. It starts in modern-day Turkey. It snakes through Syria and straight through the center of Iraq, and then it empties out into the Persian Gulf. Now, I find it very interesting that this is the region where most and the majority of hatred for Christianity and Israel stems from today. We first learn about the Euphrates River in the book of Genesis. And we're told that a river that watered the garden flowed out of Eden and separated into four rivers, one of which was the Euphrates River. So it's in this general area where sin began, where the first lie was told, where the first murder was committed, where the Tower of Babel was built, and a convolution of false religion began to spread across the world. The Euphrates River was also supposed to be the eastern boundary of the Promised Land. That's what God had said the boundaries would be. And then the areas beyond the Euphrates was the central location of three world powers that oppressed Israel, Assyria, Babylon, and Medo-Persia. Now some think that, um, some scholars think that these four fallen angels mentioned here in verse 13 might be associated with the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece that are mentioned in Daniel chapter 9. Remember, I told, we've said that Daniel is a, a companion for end times, a companion book to Revelation. Now, if you remember, in Daniel, um, Daniel had been given a revelation of end times and about a great war and what would happen to his people, the Israelites, and he didn't really understand what this revelation meant, and he had been praying and asking the Lord to, to explain it. And so an angel was sent to help explain it to Daniel, but this angel was delayed by a fallen angel called the Prince of Persia that fought with him for 21 days until Michael, the archangel, came and helped fight him off. And so then he was able to get to Daniel. And after delivering his message to Daniel, this angel told him that he had to return to fight again this Prince of Persia and that the Prince of Greece was also coming. So it's possible, we don't know for sure, but it's possible that these four angels who were bound here at the Euphrates River were associated with these powerful fallen angels mentioned in Daniel who were influencing the governments in this area during Daniel's time period. By the way, we'll see the Euphrates play another important role in chapter 16 when the enemies of God will cross it to fight in the Battle of Armageddon. Now, look at verse 15. It says that these bound demonic angels have been kept ready for the very hour, day, month, and year, which means that these four fallen angels have been locked along the Euphrates River for centuries, just waiting for their release at the exact hour, day, month, and year that God has appointed to use them in his judgment of the world. Their power to influence the world may be limited today, but during the tribulation, their restraints are going to be lifted. And notice that God's precise timing in the tribulation period is laid out down to the exact hour. The release of these fallen angels is literally scheduled on God's calendar, if God had a calendar, I don't know, for a specific hour and day and month and year. Now remember, the demonic locusts we saw earlier, 
They were only allowed to sting and torment people. But at God's specific appointed time, these four demonic angels who have been chained at the Euphrates River will be released. And them, they along with their their, uh, huge army will be permitted to kill one third of the world's remaining population. They'll incinerate them with fire and asphyxiate them with smoke and brimstone. Now, I know I mentioned it before when we looked at chapter 8 and we saw the other trumpet judgments, but just as a reminder, this repeated emphasis on one-third, one-third, one-third shows that these are all controlled divine judgments. God is in full control. Now, the size of this army, led by these four fallen angels, is tremendous. In verse 16, John tells us that he heard the number of them. He didn't guess. He didn't try to count them. He was told their number. And how many were there? 200 million. Now, if John was told the number, then I take this as it literally means this is an army of 200 million soldiers. Now, is this an army of men soldiers? Or is this an army of demon soldiers? Notice that the emphasis isn't on the riders, but on the horses. But the description that we're given of these horses makes it clear that these aren't actual horses as we know them. John says the heads of these horses looked like lions, and that the deadly power was in their mouths and tails. These horse-like creatures can attack men from the front as well as from the rear. Fire and smoke and brimstone will spew out of their mouths, which will kill one-third of the people on earth. And it says their tails are like biting serpents, which will cause a lot of injury to people. So the description of these horses, as well as the fact that they're commanded by these uh, four newly released demons, gives the impression that this is another army of demonic beings. Now, if this is describing an army of men... And the weird descriptions might be John's attempt at trying to describe modern warfare like helicopters and tanks or some type of future weaponry that we don't even know in the only way he can describe them. Because keep in mind, uh, John had never seen a rifle or a machine gun or a tank or a fighter jet, a helicopter. He hadn't seen any of these things. So the weapons of war in John's day were horses and chariots, right? Bows and arrows. So some scholars think that John is doing his best in the first century to describe weapons that will be used in the 21st century, or the 22nd, or the 23rd, or whatever century this will be. Scholars seem to be equally divided as to whether this is an army of demons or is an army of men. And I imagine if we took a poll today, we would probably be pretty divided on whether we believe this is an army of demons or an army of men. But as I said at the very beginning of our study, let's not let Satan get us bogged down in these details and speculation. Instead, what's important to understand is that one-third of the population will be killed. See, step by step, God is removing his restraining grace from the world. 
which is going to allow Satan and his demons and sinful human beings to destroy the earth and each other completely unless God stepped in to stop it. Now in chapter 6, we saw that one-fourth of, man, of mankind was killed. Here, we have one-third of the remaining inhabitants of the earth are killed. So that means that at least half of the world's population will be dead at this point in the tribulation. Think about that. It's easy to just kind of read these words on the page without stopping to think. Half of the world's population at this point in the tribulation will be dead. Even these trumpet judgments. Now, think about this. This is the most catastrophic disaster to strike the earth since the flood. But even these trumpet judgments can't penetrate the hard hearts of people who are still alive. <clears throat> I wish the next verses told us that after seeing all these things, that those people who survived would turn from their sin, would run to Jesus as their Savior. But look what verses 20 and 21 says. I think this is some of the saddest verses in Revelation. It says, The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still didn't repent of the work of their hands. They didn't stop worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze, stone and wood, idols that can't see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their magic arts or their sexual immorality or their thefts. As hard as it is to believe, most people living during this awful time of judgment will become even more hardened against God. They will close their ears to God's message of mercy and grace. They'll refuse to repent. They, they'll choose to reject Jesus and stubbornly cling to their idols and demon worship. Listen to how the message translation words it. I think this... This just makes it come even more alive. It says, The remaining men and women who weren't killed went on their merry way, didn't change their way of life, didn't quit worshiping demons, didn't quit, quit centering their lives around lumps of gold and silver and brass, hunks of stone and wood that couldn't see or hear or move. There wasn't a sign of a changed heart. They plunged right on in their murderous, occult, promiscuous, and thieving ways didn't even make a difference. Now, the book of Revelation not only shows the mighty judgments of God, but it also highlights the absolute hardness and corruption of a human heart that is untouched by the grace of God. Now, you would think that after witnessing such unbelievable, horrible suffering, as well as hearing the powerful preaching of the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, and the eagle in the sky giving a warning, you would think people would be moved to repentance, wouldn't you? But that's not the case. Not only do they refuse to repent, they continue to sin even more intensely. See, under the influence of massive demon forces, the world is going to sink into a swamp of false religion, and murder and sexual perversion and crime that's un, been unparalleled in human history. Now, were any of you struck by this list of sins in verses 20 and 21 and how rampant these are all in our world today? Did any of you, were you struck by that? 
Can you imagine? I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that all of this is going to get even worse than it is today. And it, I think it's pretty bad today. Maybe that's just another indication of how very close we are to Jesus returning, don't you think? Well, clearly the addiction to the treasures and the pleasures of this world can harden people's hearts to the point that not even judgment will be able to get their attention. The unbelievers in the tribulation have had the opportunity to turn to Jesus for forgiveness. But their desire for sin and the things of this world outweighs the price that they're paying. And so sadly, with the last trumpet getting ready to sound, their window of opportunity for repentance is rapidly coming to a close. Now, as we close today... I know that imagining the chaos and the overwhelming pain and suffering that that will fill the world during the tribulation can be frightening. And I've heard from some of you, boy, this this is scary stuff we're studying. But I want you to think about something. People aren't judged and condemned because of sin. They are judged and condemned because they refuse to repent and come to Jesus. Did you hear that? The most frightening thing about Revelation 9 isn't the judgment that God sends sweeping over the earth, but that people persist in their sin even while God is judging them. And they refuse to turn to Jesus. Their hearts are so hardened against God that instead of repenting, they'll move deeper and deeper into sin and occultism. Showing that once again, God's judgment is absolutely just. Remember, God does not want anyone to perish. He wants all people to be saved. And he's done absolutely everything that he possibly can to save them. But they refuse. So what can we get out of this chapter about demons from the abyss and four fallen angels and suffering and death except for gloom and doom and depression and fear? What can we get from this chapter? Well, let me close with three things that we can take away from this chapter, okay? First, we need to remember that even though they're invisible today, Satan and his demons are real. And they are powerful. And their objective is to steal and kill and destroy. First and foremost, they want to prevent people from putting their faith in Jesus so they can keep them bound in the kingdom of darkness for all eternity. So they will try to entice you with temporary pleasures of this life, things that look appealing and they may be satisfying for a while, But their ultimate goal is to draw you deeper and deeper into sin and bondage where they are going to torture you and then eventually kill you physically. But it's not going to stop there. Because your torture will go on for eternity. Even after you die physically. For those who have accepted Jesus, they're going to try everything they can to keep you from growing in your faith. To get you to doubt God's word and to doubt his character, to doubt his love, to doubt his promises. 
They're going to try to steal your joy and to keep you living in fear and worry and prevent you from spreading the gospel to other people. Now, sometimes we would rather pretend that demons don't exist or that we really don't need to worry about them. But God warns us in 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Remember, all the demons are not locked away and bound in the abyss today. Many, many of them are loose. And Satan is called the prince of this air, okay? The prince of this world. So we need to be alert and sober-minded. We need to take Satan and the demons seriously and be on our guard. But number two, and this is a big but, we need to remember that even though Satan and his demons are powerful, they are limited. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is sovereign. So they can only do what he allows them to do. Now, we've seen today that Jesus will use demons as a part of the judgment during the tribulation. But he is the one who's in charge of every single thing. He knows the day. He knows the hour. He's in charge of all of it. And not only is Jesus in charge of everything that's going to happen in the tribulation, he's in charge of everything that happens in your life and mine today. So instead of living in fear and worry when we're attacked by Satan or, that, or when we're blindsided by some, ex, some uh, circumstances that come into our life, we can choose to rest in the confidence that our all-knowing and all-powerful sovereign Lord has the month, the day, the year, the hour on his calendar for everything that happens in our life, too. God has a plan that he's working out in your life and mine. Nothing that happens to you or me, nothing in this world that happens to us happens without passing through his hand first. Nothing takes him by surprise. And remember this important fact. At the name of Jesus... Satan and his demons cower in fear and they run for cover. Now, is that worth saying amen to? They, at his name, they run. They're no match for him. So through Jesus, we can overcome and defeat their attacks and not become victims of their evil schemes. So, ladies, let's submit our lives to Jesus and resist that devil. Because with Jesus holding us in the palm of his hand, there's no reason for us to fear Satan and his minions, is there? And number three, (coughs) excuse me, finally, we need to remember that we're in the middle of a spiritual battle between two powerful forces. So whose side do you want to be on? Because nobody's neutral. We're either part of the darkness of domain, or the domain of darkness... Or we're a part of the kingdom of God's son, Jesus. Every one of us must choose whether we're going to build our life on fear or on faith. Faith in Jesus and his promises. See, the people we read about today, they saw supernatural signs. 
They saw an eagle flying through the sky shouting out warning. They had heard repeated preaching of the gospel. And they even experienced the warning shown in judgments from God. But even then, they refused to repent and made the choice to side with Satan and the forces of hell. So if supernatural signs don't cause somebody to repent, if the threat of eternal punishment doesn't cause somebody to repent, what is it that causes a person to repent? There's only one thing. And that's the gospel in that person's heart that the Holy Spirit brings to that person's heart that comes alive. So right now, if you have an understanding of your sin before God, if you realize that you are a sinner and you need a Savior, you didn't come to that understanding on your own. God, through his Holy Spirit, has given you the ability to understand that. And he's given you the opportunity to repent. It's a gift, ladies. But it's a gift that's not going to last forever. You know, I wonder how many of the people that we read about today heard the gospel, heard those 144,000 Jewish witnesses preach the gospel. And initially, they, uh, they understood their sin. And maybe they even considered giving their lives to Jesus. But they thought, oh, I'll just put it off till another day. And they didn't realize that they, another day wouldn't come. Or that their hearts would be, become so hard that they wouldn't hear the call of Jesus the next time. You see, every time we hear the gospel... Every time we hear God's voice in our spirit and we choose to ignore it or we choose to reject it, you know what happens? Our heart can grow a little bit colder and a little bit harder until we reach the point that we don't even hear God's call anymore. And we don't know when that would happen. So if you're listening today, and you hear God calling to your spirit to come to him, don't put it off. I beg you, don't put it off. Come to Jesus today before it's too late. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. You know, let's all bow our heads for just a moment here this morning. And maybe as the Holy Spirit is moving in this room this morning... Some of you may feel the tugging at your spirit and you're thinking, oh, I don't know, I've done so many things. But you know what? It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. God is willing to forgive you of your sin if you're willing to come to him for forgiveness. God brought you to this Bible study on this particular day at this point in your life for a reason. So right now, if you're here this morning... And you hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And you're ready to receive God's forgiveness. Just pray and talk to him right where you're sitting today. Knowing that he's listening to you from heaven right now. And you can say something like this. Dear God, I, I thank you for loving me. And I know that I failed in many, many ways. And I'm truly, truly sorry for my sin. 
But your word says that you love me so much that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. To take the punishment that I deserve for you, from you. And he died in my place. And so right now, today, January 10th, 2024, I choose to put my faith and trust in what Jesus did for me on the cross. Not in my good works, but in what Jesus did to save me from my sin. Thank you for forgiving me and for coming into my life. Now, Lord, help me spend the rest of my life living it to follow you. And Father, I thank you for providing not just a way, but the only way of escape from judgment that each of us deserves. I pray for those today who have made that choice to put their faith and trust in Jesus. Oh Lord, protect them from the attacks of the enemy who will try to steal their faith away. Surround them with other believers who will come alongside them and encourage them in their walk and help them grow. And Lord, others might be here this morning who have already prayed that prayer. But maybe as we're beginning a new year, they're ready for a new beginning in their relationship with you. After all, God, you're the God of new beginnings. So it doesn't matter what the year was like last year. We can start over this year in our walk with you. Give us the alertness to the devil's schemes to try to draw our attention away from you and get our focus on the world or onto ourselves. Give all of us the determination and the strength to follow you in a closer and bolder way this year so that we can be effective tools in your hand to draw other people into your kingdom. And Jesus, we trust you. Not only with our future, but with our lives today. Grow us deeper in our faith and our love for you so that we'll trust you more and more. And it's in your mighty, sovereign name that we ask these things. Amen. I thought we'd close today, since this was such a depressing chapter, that we'd close with a song, a hymn, that we could all sing together. So if you'll stand with me, let's sing um, Trust in Jesus. It's an old hymn. Some of you youngins might not know it. We older ones will know it. So let's sing together. 